Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It was critical to reach an agreement. And it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. We're cutting spending and bringing the deficits down at the same time. It's The Big Take. I'm Nancy Cook, in for West Kosova. Today, the debt crisis was narrowly averted, but is compromise still a dirty word in Washington? Yeas are 314, the nays are 117. The bill is passed. Everyone in America, I will never give up on you. It wasn't an easy fight. I had people on both sides upset, but I was focused on you. I am pleased, so pleased, to announce that both sides have just locked in an agreement that enables the Senate to pass legislation tonight avoiding default. I was told the days of bipartisanship were over, and that Democrats and Republicans can no longer work together. But I refuse to believe that, because America can never give in to that way of thinking. The months-long fight over raising the debt ceiling is finally over. That means the threat of the U.S. defaulting on its debts and the resulting economic crisis is off the table, at least for the next two years. Now both parties are going to try to take credit for the deal. They avoided disaster. You usually don't get rewarded for avoiding disaster. I don't think because Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy had this kumbaya moment that all of a sudden you're going to see this come to Jesus moment in the 2024 campaign. Congressional reporter Stephen Dennis and White House reporter Jordan Fabian are here. They're going to tell us what the final agreement says and the impact it'll have. Stephen, so the House and the Senate voted on a deal to raise the debt ceiling. Let's start with a quick refresher. What actually is the debt ceiling and why have we started hearing so much about it in recent years? Yeah, I mean, the debt ceiling started in 1917 and it was actually a way to make it easier to borrow money. Before then, Congress had to pass a bill for every bond issue. Every time they wanted to raise money to have a war, they would have to get together and pass a single, you know, have another vote. Now, over time, starting in 1953, it started to become a weapon on Capitol Hill. You started to have these big fights over things like building the national highway system, et cetera. And then 2011 was really the biggest fight, you know, certainly in the past 25 years where the new House Republican majority back then during Obama's era, they were intent on forcing big spending cuts, and they got them. But I want to announce that the leaders of both parties in both chambers have reached an agreement that will reduce the deficit and avoid default, a default that would have had a devastating effect on our economy. You know, they held the debt limit hostage, 
and uh, Barack Obama decided to agree to two trillion dollars in spending cuts over a decade in return for a couple trillion in debt limit increases. And, you know, the Republicans looked at that and said, hey, pretty good model for the future. Let's do that again. And that's what this year was all about. And they, they weren't quiet about this. You know, we started writing about this and reporting it before the election. Kevin McCarthy said, I'm going to do this. And the Democrats were unable to take it off the table. They actually had the power. If all the Democrats had voted last year, they could have done this on their own. They didn't do that. So you were left with this hostage situation that you could see like a slow moving freight train, you know, really months and months ago, if not years ago. So that's a good point to, I think, actually dive into the deal. Jordan, can you tell me a little bit about what's actually in there? So the headline is that they're suspending the debt ceiling until January 1st, 2025, in exchange for mandatory spending caps on both defense and domestic spending into 2025. So for the next two fiscal years, there'll be uh, limits on that spending. There are some other provisions like new work requirements for uh, certain older people who have uh, food stamp benefits and, and other public benefits. And there's some easing of energy projects for permitting. So th th those are kind of the broad outlines of this agreement. It's interesting because the top line number, this uh, reduced spending of $1.5 to $2 trillion over a decade, this deal, I think Biden really got the best of them on the length of the spending caps and the severity of them. Uh, there were some automatic spending cuts across the board that were triggered under the deal that President Obama had with Republicans 10 years ago. These spending caps are only for the next two years. So if President Biden wins re-election, he will be able to budget relatively unconstrained, of, of course, depending on the makeup of Congress, but facing less spending constraints than President Obama did. And that would, in theory, help him accomplish more on his domestic agenda in the second term. And Steve, what ended up not being in the deal? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the original House bill, it had almost $5 trillion in real deficit cuts. It would have canceled the student loan relief that's before the Supreme Court. It would have undone most of the climate uh, tax credits, things like EV tax credits that are a pretty big deal right now because you're seeing battery factories all, all over being built right now. It, it would have rolled back a lot of his agenda for the past two years. It also would have had much deeper spending cuts for and with 10 years of enforceable caps. You know, if you have 10 years of enforceable caps, that banks leverage, not just for the next year or the next two years, but year three, year four, year five. And so that's where the White House really, you know, if you dig into the details of the deal, what Kevin McCarthy really wanted and, you know, he had to claim a win. He was a new speaker with a very tenuous majority, with a right flank that is sort of out for his gavel, and he needed to get a win. They are now on record, so they can't sit there and yell, this isn't good. So I'll bring something back tomorrow. Let's get the rest of the IRS agents. Let's get the rest of the work requirements. Let's cut more because we are in a big debt. This is fabulous. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. Now I found there's a whole new day here. So I think from the perspective, if you're like a typical American and you're wondering how is this going to affect me, 
uh, there really isn't a whole lot in here that you can guarantee is going to affect you. This is about an outline for future spending fights. It's a top line number that the appropriators are going to have to fill in between the lines. So it's it says, you know, we're going to have 637 billion in domestic discretionary funding after all of the gimmicks are added back in. That means it's roughly flat. But roughly flat for the entire domestic agenda. You know, how much is going to go to the Department of Justice? We won't know until September or December. How much is going going to go for Meals on Wheels? You know, all these government programs, uh, the entire alphabet soup of agencies, their lobbyists are going to be on Capitol Hill trying to plus up that spending. And there is a provision in here that is very interesting and new. And that is if they do not have a deal by January 1st and they have something called a continuing resolution, which is just sort of a stopgap to keep the government open and not have a shutdown, that if they do that, there would be an additional across the board 1% cut. But this is something that, you know, really potentially brings the two parties together because they each have priorities they want in these bills. You have to pass all 12 bills to avoid this cut. And the thing about this cut is it really hurts Republicans more than Democrats. It really cuts defense by about four and a half percent from the caps that they agreed to. And it actually doesn't really cut non-defense discretionary. So all the pressure is on the Republicans to cut a deal before the end of the year or else their priorities get cut. That's the way to look at it. So just so I'm clear, it doesn't actually cut spending from where it is today. Is that right, Jordan? It just means that they won't spend as much in the future. Yeah, it it, it really holds spending levels at current levels rather than forces a cut. Um, I mean, I think there's there's sort of like a raw $12 billion cut, but that's really undermined by a lot of side deals that include things like rescinding COVID money and rescinding some of the IRS money in in the future to pay for money now. So on the top line, it's you can say it's a cut, but I think everybody should have a very, a very healthy dose of skepticism that any of these caps are going to hold even to the end of the year. Yeah. And like, like Steve mentioned, the White House has indicated they're going to do some budget gimmicks to essentially keep the spending level steady. And what we also saw in the Senate was a lot of defense hawks very upset about the level of defense spending that was included in this deal. And there were assurances made that, oh, don't worry, uh, if we need more spending for Ukraine or let's say we get into, you know, God forbid, a conflict with China or something like that, where we would need to plus up defense spending, that vote will happen. And so that cap, at least on the defense side, was kind of Throw it under an 18-wheeler last night. Yeah, and it it wasn't even defense. I mean, I spoke to Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and it's clear to me that the uh, this caps deal is irrelevant in the Senate. The Senate does not really plan to stick by these caps. They're already talking about doing a big supplemental spending uh, package to include potentially Ukraine, Navy ships. Dealing with China, competition, China competition bill, fentanyl, and any other national priority. Now, when when Chuck Schumer said that on the Senate floor, that they stand ready to process any supplemental request, that was a, a basically a green light that the Senate is prepared to spend all kinds of money, way above these caps. 
these caps are only going to be as relevant as the House uh, majority and and Kevin McCarthy want them to be. As far as the House, it's not clear to me that there's really a a huge desire to keep to these caps either. They have their defense hawks who want to spend more money. They have folks who want to spend more money on some domestic issues as well. I'm not sure they're going to actually be able to pass a lot of their bills keeping to these spending levels without a lot more gimmicks. Jordan, I'm I'm curious, what was the most contentious part of the deal? Maybe you could just say for both Republicans and Democrats. For Democrats and Joe Biden, it was negotiating over the debt limit, period. This is something that Joe Biden repeatedly insisted he didn't want to do. Will you meet with McCarthy? When can McCarthy, but not on whether or not the debt limit gets extended. That's not negotiable. In fact, the White House continues to insist that they did not negotiate over the debt limit, despite all indications to the contrary. But as we discussed earlier, Joe Biden and Democrats were very wary of setting this precedent where under a Republican majorities in Congress, the debt limit gets held hostage and used as leverage to extract policy demands. And I don't even want to say spending cuts, but policy demands of the Republican majority. Uh, They wanted to do away with that. The reality is that Joe Biden was forced to sit down and negotiate over the debt limit. And Kevin McCarthy showed that despite his rest of caucus that forced 15 ballots before he became speaker, he was able to marshal enough support, the two-thirds support of his conference, to get behind a bipartisan deal with a Democratic president. Now, for Republicans, one might say that they did not accomplish nearly as much as they wanted to uh, in this hostage situation. They got, as we've talked about, uh, very soft spending caps. Uh, uh, really, the de- if the goal was deficit reduction, it's not going to reduce the, de- the deficit by much at all. Bottom line is that if you look at the bill that House Republicans initially passed, much deeper spending cuts, much bigger changes to entitlement programs, repealing Joe Biden's first term agenda, They did not get nearly any of that. And that's why you saw a lot of House conservatives very upset and also some Senate Republicans very upset to the extent that a lot of them, the majority of Senate Republicans, did not vote for this agreement. They don't think that Kevin McCarthy got enough in exchange for raising the debt limit, essentially kicking this issue beyond the presidential election. They will not have another bite at the apple here before President Biden uh, goes back to voters and asks for a second term. And one thing that I think is important to sort of put in perspective when you hear the numbers one and a half trillion or two trillion over 10 years, before this deal, we were on track to spend 80 trillion and have 60 trillion in revenue and a $20 trillion deficit. So our debt is on track to go up 20 trillion before the deal. After the deal, if you believe they'll stick to the spending caps, and I think there are very few senators at least that think they will actually stick to these spending caps, you are going to spend $78.5 trillion, according to CBO. So does that change the trajectory of you know the national finances? A little bit. But if you just look at the two years, the final two years of Biden's presidency, the, the spending cuts are about $200 billion, not counting all the gimmicks. I think they're going to be very lucky to get through the next two years without spending $200 billion on other things like disasters in Ukraine and and all the rest. 
After the break, what the deal says about the state of getting things done in Washington. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, Jordan, President Biden said at the start of this that he would not negotiate on the debt ceiling, but he wound up doing that. What made him change his mind? The prospect of a recession triggered by a first ever default on the U.S. debt was too big of a risk for Joe Biden to take in sitting out a negotiation and essentially leaving it to chance. Uh, he felt that he needed to get a deal done and take the possibility of a default off the table. He did not want, number one, a recession to hit the U.S. economy right now, and number two, especially at a time when he's looking to ramp up his re-election campaign. If history shows presidents running for re-election during times of recession usually lose. And so he did not want an additional variable inserted into that race. He's already facing a lot of tough questions about his age and his fitness for office and also how, whether his record is breaking through to the American people. There's just a very sour mood in the country right now. He did not need a recession on top of that. So ultimately, the political calculus pointed to Biden eventually sitting down with Republicans and hammering out a deal. Now, Jordan, what do progressives think about this deal? Because it claws back some money for IRS funding. It imposes some work requirements for adults to get food stamps. I can't imagine that progressives are really jazzed about that. They're not, Nancy. They're they're upset about all the provisions you just listed. And while President Biden did well in attracting majorities of Democrats in both the House and the Senate to vote for this deal, a lot of them did so reluctantly. And one thing to look out for as Joe Biden ramps up his reelection campaign here is how enthusiastic support will he be receiving from those progressives and from voters of color and other people who might not like what's in this deal. I will say there was not a full on revolt against this deal, as indicated by the vote count. Joe Biden uh, did sort of swat off some of the more extreme things Republicans wanted, like Uh, scrapping a lot of environmental protections for energy permitting, also repealing his Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the the climate and health provisions of that bill. But he's already facing an enthusiasm deficit with a lot of the voters who helped elect him to office in 2020. He needs those people to be motivated to vote for him again in 2024. Right. I mean, they got a deal. They uh, averted defaulting, which is a good thing. But Stephen, did either side really get a lot of political capital out of this deal, out of this compromise? 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a mixed picture. Um, I think the Republican Party is a little bit divided right now, particularly in the House, over uh, wishing they had gotten a better deal. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. No one sent us here to borrow an additional $4 trillion to get absolutely nothing in return. You know, there are some House members talking about trying to oust the speaker. They do not have the votes to elect a new speaker. So, you know, usually <laughs> when you're trying to oust somebody, there's a reason why there hasn't been a roll call vote on ousting a speaker since 1910 and that vote failed. You know, you, you it's hard to go after the king, <laughs> as they say. And normally when you're going after the king, you don't want to miss. So uh, some of these... Folks, any any one House member can force a vote, but uh, from our reporting, talking to a lot of Democrats, people like Steny Hoyer, they're prepared, um, and there are there are Democrats who are openly talking about keeping Speaker McCarthy in his job if his if his right flank tries to oust him, a small band of fifteen or twenty. On the Senate side, they were mostly irrelevant to this process. I think one of the things that was going on in the Senate and why Chuck Schumer was willing to be irrelevant to this process, I think he was most focused on preventing a default. And I think the second thing is he wanted to protect his members. You know, if you look at the Senate map next year, there are many, many more Democrats up for re-election than Republicans, and the debt limit is kind of politically toxic. So they wanted to have a bipartisan deal that was one of the things that was, I think, in the calculus and why they didn't do it last year is they didn't want to own the debt limit all by themselves. They wanted Republican uh, cover. And so they got that. Yeah, that's a good point about the Senate map. Jordan, I'm curious, just like from 30,000 foot, what does this say about what can and can't get done in Washington moving forward? So I think it's a mixed picture. On one hand, you had President Biden promise when he ran for the presidency in 2020 that Republicans would have an epiphany in the post-Trump era and then start to work with Democrats again. A lot of people laughed him off. But if you look at his record, he actually now does have a number of examples he can point to to tell his doubters that he was actually right. There was this debt limit deal. You look at the bipartisan infrastructure bill that he got passed uh, during the last couple of years. And also he did get a small but significant piece of gun control legislation through with bipartisan support. So he can go to voters uh, in 2024 and say, look, I can get things done. I know how to work with Republicans, despite the hyperpartisanship that exists in this country. But on the flip side, you, you look at this deal and, and frankly, it's kind of small fries. It's not like we're accomplishing something major here. It's, it's really staving off a disaster. I mean, we're, we're like, and, and just interject, it's also paying bills on money we already spent. Exactly. So it's not like we're passing some sort of major new initiative here. It's, again, just making sure the country doesn't blow up. And so should we really be patting ourselves on the back over that? Should Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy be patting themselves on the back over that? Uh, probably not, but uh, they're going to do it anyway. I mean, I do think that one thing that this deal sort of demonstrated is that the era of like big expansions of government and the safety net are basically over. You're going to be doing more small ball kinds of deals. 
But there are a couple of green shoots that I think you can take from this. Um, one is on the permitting side. They got sort of a baby permitting deal in here where the Democrats got some speeding up of permitting for green energy projects in return for some speeding up of fossil fuels as well. There is a major bipartisan negotiation on permitting that could be the most significant thing that actually happens this year where both sides want something. If you look at that Inflation Reduction Act, all those solar plants and wind farms that are being built, they need transmission lines to be relevant and to have more of them built. Uh, that's something to watch. Another thing that's sort of something to watch is China. There, There is a, a committee in the House, uh, bipartisan, set up by Kevin McCarthy. He wants to have a big bipartisan uh, legislation on competing with China. And the Democrats and the Senate also want to do something there, and so does the White House. I, I think that that's something to just watch, especially if things heat up over Taiwan. Now, is that going to be, you know, an Obamacare-style legacy program accomplishment? No. But in a divided government, it's the kind of thing that you can get done that could be pretty significant. When we come back, how the debt ceiling deal will affect the 2024 campaign trail and future debt negotiations. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, Jordan, I'm curious how this debt deal will impact the economy more broadly, both short term and then just in the longer term. Most projections say that this is not going to have a tremendous effect on the economy. I believe there was a Morgan Stanley estimate that showed that it might shave a couple of hundreds of a percentage point off the GDP for next year. But as we discussed, the the spending cuts are really not that significant. I mean, they are significant politically, but economically, it's it's just not that much. And it doesn't, it pales a comparison to the level of spending cuts that were in the last debt limit deal in 2011 and 2013, which were pretty significant across the board spending cuts. This deal, I think most estimates say, is not going to have that kind of effect. But there are other things in the economy, obviously inflation and just the overall risk environment that could point to a recession perhaps closer to 2024. But the deal won't have anything to do with the recession. It's hard to like predict 100 percent, but likely not. Yeah. So we we talked to one analyst who was like, look, if you total up the 70 billion in cuts in this bill for the first year, that's about 0.3 percent of GDP. And he made the point, he was a supporter of the deal. He said, look, this could cut 0.25 percent maybe off of inflation. And the big difference between the economy of 2011 and the economy of today is in 2011, the refrain from House Republicans was, where are the jobs? The unemployment rate was still high. We, had, we were coming off the Great Recession. And you know they were cutting spending at a time when the the economy was really slow in coming back we have a we have a, in some ways a roaring economy for jobs we have one of the lowest unemployment rates 
on record. The issue in the country has been more inflation. And so uh, there could be some benefits here if inflation gets curbed just even the tiniest bit going into next year without actually causing a recession. And how do you think that will affect the rhetoric on the campaign trail in 2024? I don't think because Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy had this kumbaya moment that all of a sudden uh, you're going to see this uh, come to Jesus moment in the 2024 campaign and all the heated political rhetoric we've seen for the past decade plus is going to subside. American public think is wrong if we simply saying let's spend what we spent five months ago. But every moment I've spent with the president, he doesn't want to go there. He does not want to go back one dollar. It's going to be a bare knuckle election. Joe Biden, if you looked at what he said during his 2020 campaign, there were a lot of you know, themes of unity that I could bring back this era of bipartisan cooperation. And this is only going to enhance that while also drawing a contrast with Trump or whomever else he might be running against. So I'm not sure that it really changes the, the dynamics of the race that much. I think uh, I would discount the deal really impacting the election. Not getting a deal would have impacted the election. You know, they needed to avoid disaster. They avoided disaster. You usually don't get rewarded for avoiding disaster, right? People are focused on the next thing, the kitchen table issue, the fight next year. So it sounds like, Stephen, from what you're telling me, voters you do not think will hold Washington politicians responsible for getting this close to the deadline for the default. I think it's it's very hard when the numbers get this big for, for a lot of voters to really get a sense of how big the deficit is and what it would mean if we stopped paying our bills. I do think if Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden are in the same positions in a few years, is there a prospect for a grand bargain that does look at this 20 trillion, 18 trillion that we're facing and deal with not just the discretionary side, but all these other programs that are gonna start running out of their trust funds in the next five, 12 years? Jordan, what are you watching next? Stephen talked a little bit about what he is looking for. What about you? I'm looking to see what happens with the debt limit. Uh, this is uh, something that is, as we've discussed, become extremely controversial, contentious. And a lot of people in Joe Biden's party want to get rid of the debt limit. And this is something that Joe Biden, you know, traditionalist in the Senate for 30, 40 years, has been resistant to in the past. I'm interested to see if this experience has changed his thinking. He has indicated perhaps that he is open to either getting rid of it or lifting it on his own through the 14th Amendment, which is a it would be a controversial and novel legal theory. Uh, basically, you know, there's language in the 14th Amendment saying that the, you know, the U.S. must pay its debts. And so there have been some folks on his side who have said you can take that, use that authority to raise the debt limit unilaterally as president. You wouldn't need Congress. You wouldn't need to go through this sort of negotiation again. You could prevent Republicans from taking the debt limit hostage. It, does the president express openness to that? Does he actually try and work with Democrats and perhaps some Republicans to eliminate the debt ceiling, the statutory debt ceiling. Yeah, I do think the 14th Amendment is, I think it's very unlikely that he even goes that route because he's facing a Supreme Court that is hostile to, to kind of novel legal theories that help Democrats. But the bigger issue is the U.S. Senate. It's very unlikely that the Democrats have more than 50 or 51 seats after a 
very difficult map next year and you need at least 51 who are going to or 50 or 51 who are going to agree to eliminate the debt limit entirely i think it's very unlikely they need to get to something like 54 or 55 senate seats so that you can find 51 and have the house back to raise the debt ceiling unilaterally to some astronomical number that it's effectively repealed that's that's the way to do it i think it's unlikely that happens anytime in the next you know few cycles jordan steven thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me on yeah it's absolutely fantastic let's do it again in two years Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. Our supervising producer is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Katherine Fink, and they both produced this episode. Original music is by Leo Sidron. I'm Nancy Cook, in for West Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.